I came across today's guest on Instagram and their quotes, their motivation, their understanding of relationships and the power of walking away, the power of actually being alone when you're not in the right relationship. Um, And then I heard he had a book out. So of course, I absolutely reached out. And today, guys, I have him on the show. Today, guys, we dive in into everything relationships from absolutely you should be damn picky about who you settle for. That maybe when you got with somebody that was your 1.0 version but what about when you evolve and you become a 2.0 version of yourself how on earth do you navigate those relationships and know when it's time to leave and embrace that right now it's actually better for you to be alone than be in a toxic relationship or in a relationship that doesn't serve you one of the most romantic things that you can do in a relationship now guys it's not what you think And so I'm so excited to share this episode with you. But before we dive in, the one thing, guys, I just want to ask, if you have 30 seconds, please go in and give this podcast a rate and a review. You have no idea how much that means to me and how much that really does able the podcast to get out and expand to more people so we can keep creating impact together. So without further ado, let's dive in with the relationship expert, Case Kenny. Loneliness is just a reflection of honesty. Like when you feel lonely, it's because you you haven't found a connection that is true to you and therefore you feel lonely in effect. So when I think about that within the context of life and people, I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people are so averse to that loneliness that they'll lower the bar, they'll lower their threshold for what connection is so that they don't feel lonely. So when I feel lonely or I talk to someone who feels lonely, I'm like, I understand that, you know, this is a negative feeling and no one wants to be in a chapter of loneliness, but it is a reflection that you haven't given up on that thing. So that's my like optimistic rebranding of loneliness because it means you haven't given up. Loneliness is is such a compelling force within the way our internal dialogue works because we're very quick to rebrand things. I remember conversations I would have in my head when I was in my my mid-20s in my career dating people, literally conversations of like, like case, like, why do you want more? Like, just relax. Like, you're making good money. You're making six figures at this job. You're dating someone who's, she's attractive and other people like her and she looks good on paper. Like, like, relax. Like, why are you, why are you pulling for more? And I think a lot of our conversations go like that, whether we have something and we're trying to talk ourselves out of wanting more or we have nothing and we're trying to talk ourselves out of having something. But mm-hmm. our, that, I think that's human nature to really talk ourselves out of, out of these things. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating to look back and be like, man, I almost let that conversation win in my head. And I talked to so many people who look back and they're like, yeah, I remember the exact moment that I that I lowered the bar in response to loneliness in order to stop feeling lonely. Because I think there's a lot of things in life that can, you know, avert loneliness. Like it's very, be very easy for me to be like, yeah, okay. I like fantasy football. That's enough. That's enough connection with my guy friends. That's fine. I hate fantasy football. It (laughs) it offers nothing. I don't care about that. Or like whatever, you know, spectrum you can choose. It's like, it's very easy to do that. Um, you know, I think the, the, the thing that I always encourage people to, to think about whether it's within loneliness or some kind of emotion that's pulling you back is recognizing the difference between facts and feelings. Um, I think this is a topic, of course, that any therapist will really challenge challenge you with. It's like feel what you're feeling, feel that, feel the loneliness, feel the the disappointment, feel the frustration. Let's sit in that emotion. We're not avoiding it. We're not sweeping it under the rug. We're not blaming ourselves. But then we're we're comparing it to facts. 
And facts are a, a subject in and of itself. But if you don't have a set of facts that you've determined that these are the facts of my life, these are the things that I believe in so firmly and fully that I will never negotiate on. If you don't have those to compare to your feelings, so within the, the context of relationship, for instance, you know, cliche, but what you want in a partner and specifically why you want a partner. What is the purpose of a relationship for you? If you haven't sat down and decided that in some sense, those feelings are going to win every time and your, mm-hmm. your actions are always going to follow suit. So like as a practical guy, it's like, if I have a feeling that's normal and human and I'm going to sit in that feeling and then I'm going to compare it to facts. But if I haven't done some semblance of mindfulness or journaling or therapy or just self-introspection to come up with facts, it's it's we're setting ourselves up to, to fail and to act out of loneliness. So what are the things you so firmly believe in? What are the experiences in your life that led you there? I talk a lot about being picky and selective. What are the how did you get to these these things? So uh, I won't I won't ramble on that. But I think facts versus feelings is how you arrive to that situation where you say, OK, I feel lonely, but here's the fact. And as a result, I'm going to challenge that. I'm not going to let my actions follow suit. Mm, I love that. Um Speaking of picky, though, because that's also the part of everything that we're talking about, right? You can always convince yourself sometimes in these things as you're doing the process. It's like, yes, but am I asking for the world? Right. Am I too picky? Should I not just be settling with this person who loves me? They really do love me. Yeah. Um, the picky thing, right? I think we tell ourselves maybe we're being too picky. And then yes. to your point, other people say that you're being picky. Yep. So how do you start to differentiate between, no, 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 you're just, you're not being picky. You just have standards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a subject I love because my whole thing with mindfulness as a whole is mindfulness in the way that I define it. There's many different ways, and I suppose there's no right or wrong way. For me, about I think about mindfulness within the context of your life experiences, of the memories that you have at whatever age you are, making sense of those memories in a practical, logical, compassionate way. Instead of saying, here's a time I failed, this is proof that I'm a failure. Here's a time that I'm lonely, here's a proof that I'm a loser, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. Finding ways to rebrand, reframe those memories in compassionate ways. That's how I think about mindfulness. It's very observation-based as opposed to mindfulness that is more like spiritually based. Mm -hmm. It is like you're a lawyer and you're saying, here's the facts and here's the conclusion. That's the mindfulness. And I think for dating and pickiness and selectiveness and the whole thing, it comes back to that. So when I think about the word picky, um, I think a lot about like our evolution as people when it comes to what we want in a partner. I think when you're young, you're in your maybe late teens, uh, early 20s, certainly. I think there's a, a tendency to, to be picky in the sense that picky is version 1.0 of standards and that you're like, I don't have enough life experience to truly know what I need in a partner. So I'm just going to kind of borrow that and borrow that. And I'll listen to cases podcast and I'll borrow that. Or I saw this in a movie. I'll borrow that. Nothing wrong with that. We're just, we're just sponges out there trying to figure out what's right for us because we don't have the life experience to say this, that, or the other. And that's, that's version 1.0. And I think it's a great starting point. I think people need to give them credit themselves credit for evolving past that as they get older in that now you are selected, which is 2.0, which is saying, I have had this bad experience and therefore this is my standard. I think when you have experiences that you can point to, that is what makes a standard or a boundary for one, unbreakable, hopefully for you, but two, it's proof. It's proof of why. Mm -hmm. I think mindfulness, the goal should be to give you emotional proof for your perspective or vision on life. And the, the reality of dating is, unfortunately, you're going to go through experiences where you experience the probably the direct opposite of what you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Someone lied to you, someone cheated on you, someone ghosted you, someone said one thing and did another thing. Like, this just the, the reality of being human. 
those are the experiences that I lean on that say, this is why you're selective. You have proof of why. You're not just guessing. You're not just theorizing. You're not mm-hmm. just picking standards out of a hat and saying, oh, I want that, that, and the other. You're saying, I want that, that, and the other because I have these experiences. And I think if you can look at your life and say, this person, this experience taught me to have this standard, I, I don't think you're ever too picky because mm-hmm. you have the experience. It's not just theory for you. Um, so I find a lot of power in that. I think we need to give ourselves credit for the unfortunate experience we've we've been through because those are the most empowering ones. Mm-hmm. They're the most difficult ones, of course, but they're the most empowering ones, particularly when it comes to being selective. That's so freaking strong, but here's the tricky part of it. What if you've just been in bad relationships where now you don't actually believe that this, there's there's a higher standard? Like yeah. I've been in a bad relationship in my past before I met my husband and it, he was verbally abusive. He wasn't kind. And I, because he was my first boyfriend, because I was very vulnerable, because I didn't have any selfish esteem after him it wasn't like i was like well i've got better standards now i almost like had him as like i guess this is base so how do you start to assess even the standards that you've put for yourself on if they're healthy standards or not yeah. So, I mean, that's that, that's where, like, I have nothing but empathy to offer. It's like, yeah, as a human, if you've been through back to back to back bad relationships or if all you've ever known are bad relationships, because be real, some people have just gotten the, the bad end of, of, of life and that's all they know. I think it's it's very easy to talk yourself out of really any any redeeming standards or, or boundaries. And I think it's very easy to get in that headspace. I think for me, I, the easy answer would be, Talk to a therapist <laughs> to unpack that. Uh, but for two, I think a lot about like, I think about a lot about limiting beliefs, for mm. instance, like maybe related to having, you know, a lack of standards in that sense. The question that I come back to is like, how can we kind of shock our system to maybe open ourselves up to another option? Maybe I do deserve more. Maybe all men aren't like this. All women are like this. How can we get ourselves into that headspace? Mm. The question that I always come back to and say, okay, here's the things that I've been believing for a long time. Maybe I'm unlovable, for instance. Uh, here's how my actions have followed suit. I've put up with people who, uh, you know, took advantage of me, who treated me like an option, so on and so forth. I've done these things. I've had this mindset because I believe in this reality, unlovable, don't work, believe something, don't deserve something. The question I always try to encourage myself to ask myself is what if I'm wrong? And how would that, how would that change things? Just like in, in a moment of pure vulnerability to say, okay, I believe that I'm, I'm, I am unlovable, for instance, which is the, the reality I hope most people don't find themselves in. But what if I'm wrong? How would that change how I see life? How would that change what I do? So on and so forth. I think a moment like that particularly like within journaling or therapy, I think it'd be really, really powerful. Just challenge, like going to the opposite end of a spectrum. What if I'm wrong? How would that change things? I think a lot about like spectrums and assumptions within mindfulness. Um, you know, like if there's a worst case scenario, which is what we gravitate towards a lot in dating, like, oh, you know, he's going to break my heart. She's going to do this, so on and so forth. If there's a worst case scenario, logically in my head, there has to exist a best case scenario. But we've probably blind to that fact. We've probably completely forgotten about that because of everything we're talking about here. Can you open your mind to just saying and believing that it exists in some way? Great first step. Can you define it in some way? What if you're wrong about the reality you've been describing? And then just just to, to, to believe that it exists. I know that sounds like rather vague, but I think a lot of the times we're in, we're in robot mode. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's robot mode that is the result of conditioned understanding of life through childhood upbringing relationships, the key to breaking out, I think, is just showing yourself that there's a a larger menu (laughs) to to choose from 
And I, and I think that could be the catalyst you need to then maybe go back through your memories and say, okay, feeling, 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 but fact, let's redefine the fact and let's move forward with it. So I try to, I really just try to bring as much logic to like breaking free of limiting beliefs Mm -hmm. or conditioned understanding of oneself. And I think maybe the example of a spectrum or just opposites is helpful. I love that so much. I do need tactical things, right? Because it's like in those moments, we don't necessarily feel it. Like if you really, really freaking feel like you're unlovable, how the hell do you break out of it? And so even having a tactic like that was like, okay, what would it look like if it was the opposite? It's a very easy, simple tool for, I think, for people to get started where they don't necessarily feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And and again, I think about the words, like one of my favorite journaling exercises is, is a very simple one. Um, it's one I've kind of borrowed from uh, like habit formation, like when you're trying to encourage yourself to do mm-hmm. something. Um, for me, it's a general exercise I call I'm the kind of person who, and then you just complete it with a bunch of verb statements in order to back up what is likely an adjective. Cause you want to say, I'm the kind of person who is successful, confident, lovable, uh, you know, creative, whatever, confident, whatever thing you're after. I think we get tripped up a lot when we're focused on adjectives. Like we, if we say like, I want to be lovable or I, I believe I'm a lovable person. But then all of a sudden we, we quickly overwhelm that with all of our past experiences. How can we push through that and actually prove to ourselves that we're lovable? I think the solution is, is I have a weird relationship with words, but it's like, stop using adjectives. Let's use verb statements to one, give ourselves credit for the things we do. And then if we're not doing them currently, give ourselves a roadmap for doing them. So like in the case of like being lovable, which is a whole other topic. What does that really mean? I think uh, I think any relationship should be based on reciprocity, of course. If you're honest with someone, you deserve someone who's honest with you in return, kindness, empathy, so on and so forth. The exercise, of, I'm the kind of person who, well, I'm the kind of person who is willing to try first, who's willing to be hurt, who's willing to put themselves out there, who's willing to be kind, eager, open, honest. Those are powerful things. And you're like, well, I'm willing to do those things. I'm willing to do those things. And a relationship is built on reciprocity, so I deserve them in return, I am lovable in that sense, following the line of logic, as opposed to just kind of sitting in ambiguity of, you know, worth and what you deserve. It's like, prove it to yourself. Give yourself credit for all the things you do, the things you bring to the table, even if they haven't been returned to you, which is hurtful. But remind yourself of that sit in that space of of pride, if you want to call it that, um, or give yourself a roadmap for doing more um, outside of a relationship, whatever it may be. So things like that, like, Audit yourself. Give yourself credit. I think it'd be helpful as well. Oh, I love that. And the reciprocity thing is so amazing, the way you just laid that out, because I think that that gives people a really tactical thing for them to start writing down, you know, I'm the type of person that, and then go, cool, so now... I should get this in a partner. And do they now actually serve me versus the other way around? And in your book, you talk about how often we, um, we like look for the other person to choose us versus us actually choosing the person. Um, explain to me why we do it. Obviously, why that's dangerous and then how we can start to pivot because you very eloquently say that a lot of us, the, the advice that we've been given and then also based on the hurt and pain we've been through in our relationships in the past, a lot of us now show up to be like, oh, the person that cares less wins. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think we've all seen it on social media. It's very common dating advice. You know, whoever cares less holds the power. Whoever cares less wins. Whoever cares less doesn't get hurt so on and so forth, Uh, care less and you have power is kind of the thesis statement. I think in theory, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think it's kind of true. Yeah, if you don't care, you're not going to be hurt, of course, practically. Uh, If you you care second, yeah, then you're not going to be rejected because you're waiting for them to care. So I think these are all practically true things. Again, to the idea of facts and feelings, where is that coming from? Well, 
you know, someone who gives that advice has likely been hurt in the past. Again, no problem. You're not a bad person for being hurt. But I think sometimes we, we confuse these, these, these feelings. So I think when we're thinking about like, wow, I want to preserve myself. I want to protect myself, self-preservation. It's true. But I think a lot of the times is what we fear most is being hurt again, which is true. And that's a very debilitating thing. But I think about like, what does it look like in life to give away your power? And I think it's that to a T being the person who only reacts in reaction to other people's behavior. You're essentially waiting for permission to to love, to care, to go for something, to, to do this, that, and the other. I think it's such a passive way to live life. And again, that's easy advice to give because it's like, yeah, no, just go for it. If you're rejected, you're rejected. And I know life is not that simple. I could sit here all day and say rejection is is whatever, you're fine. And it's not that easy for, for everyone. Mm. So I think a lot of the time about advice like that, you know, care less and you're protected. And I, I disagree with it on an emotional level because I think that means you've squarely put yourself in the passenger seat of life. So I think about like, how can we break through that and encourage people to say, I'm willing to care first because one, I believe in what I deserve and I believe in what I want. You know, I, I want a partner really bad. I want to share my life with someone. Great. So you're willing to go through the things that might detract from your ability to do that in the immediate. How can you put yourself in a position to be willing to be hurt? I think in order to love, you have to be willing to, to lose love. Matter of fact, that you have to be, you have to be willing to be hurt. How do you put yourself in a practical headspace to be incentivized, not to be hurt, because that sounds weird, but to hear no, to, 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 to go first and have that person say, right person, wrong time, not looking for a relationship, whatever it is. How can we practically put ourselves in that headspace? The advice I always give, um, that has worked well for me is again, it's just, it's, Focus on what the outcome is that you want. And when it comes to like going first or speaking your intention and potentially having it thrown back in your face, I always come back to the, the idea of when you speak up, when you speak to your intention, when you're willing to go first, you either get what you want or you get what you need. And both of those things are a win. The third, which would be to do nothing is the only loss in that mm-hmm. scenario. So you speak up and you say, I'm interested in you, whatever you get what you want. They're interested in you back. Great. Fantastic. You got what you want. They respond and say, I'm not interested. Well, you got what you needed. It's the result, of course, that hurts the most. And it's the result that could double down on you and make it make you even go even further into protection mode. But I think about the third scenario, which is what I refer to in the book as living in the gray of life, which is you're not making any decision at all. You're literally floating. You're waiting for other people to come to you and define you for you, your mission, what you want, so on and so forth. I think if those are the three scenarios... I am personally incentivized to put myself in that position. And maybe that's just me. Um, I have a background in sales where like I always used to hear no and it, and I just mm. got kind of got over it. And, you know, emotionally, I've always, you know, been willing to, to hear no because the second I hear no, I'm like, great, fantastic. Now I don't have to waste time here anymore, practically. So I just try to encourage people mantra wise. Maybe it's get what I want, get what I need, get what I want, get what I need. Mm. Those are the two scenarios and both are redeeming in some way, as opposed to staying in a headspace of, I don't know, hopefully they'll show me, you know, maybe if they're interested, maybe they'll, they'll set the tone. Um, for me, I think I'm very motivated by regret in life and not wanting to look back on regret. That's a big topic. And I think that's a, unfortunately a, a fast track to regret of hoping someone else will give you clarity when we're all so fully capable of giving ourselves clarity. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. 
And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doc that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for absolutely free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Lisa. ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa. Oh God, that was so good. But the regret thing is really real. And I'm going to speak for a lot of women that are probably listening right now. If you get rejected, it now becomes about your worth. And I don't think men have necessarily been taught that, which is why I think it's somewhat easier. Again, I'm always trying not to be just generalized, but it feels like it's somewhat easier for a guy because they've been taught, hey, no, it just means you keep going. As a woman, it becomes about your worth, who you see yourself to be, and then the language you end up using. But now to the point of regret. There's two parts to it. If I keep going, it's like, I'm just going to keep putting myself out there. And now every moment of that is a chip away at my self-esteem. Now it becomes a regret to keep putting yourself out there. I wish I hadn't done it because now I don't feel good about myself. Versus the regret that you're talking about, which is Mm. I'd rather hear a no because I don't want to regret wondering. Two two very different <laughs> different sides <laughs> yeah. of the same coin. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I mean, what's the cliche? Better a, a whoops than a, a what if or whatever. Oh, that, like, like that. that's always been my cup of tea because I, regret is such a uh, it makes me so uncomfortable even think about regret because regret is actions or inaction that you can't change in the past. Mm. You cannot go back and change the past. And to me, that makes my skin crawl because there I was in the past, fully capable of doing something that would embarrass me, make me feel bad, make me feel less, so on and so forth. But comparison of outcomes, I would rather feel that feeling than look back powerless. That's just me. Um, and I know not everyone is capable of that. And to your, and to your point about men and women, I too try to stay away from men are this, women are this, but I think practically speaking, it is very true. Mm-hmm. Men are taught that, you know, shooting your shot is, is a logistical process. Yes. You just, you just, it's a statistical probability. You just do it until you hit gold and then, and then you could be emotional about it. Uh, and women, on the other hand, there's much more uh, emotional vulnerability associated with it. So I think, uh, you know, it's, 
the, I think the same advice is true. They're going back to what we're talking about facts and feelings and like mm-hmm. staying, you know, not allowing those things to erode the facts that you've established coming back to them until you eventually do find that person who doesn't, you know, erode that for yourself. Mm. But yeah, I, I agree. It's, it is a tough, uh, <laughs> it is, it is a, it's tough being a woman out there when, you know, it's maybe where we've been taught to you know, look at our self worth through the lens, of course, of validation. I just did an episode the other day on the idea of, um, it came from a TikTok I saw of like women being too male focused, too male centered. Um, a lot of women, apparently they were kind of dunking on other women for every conversations about a guy, every conversations about this, like male attention, this, that, and the other. And, um, I saw that and I was like, I didn't really know that that was a thing or something to make fun of. But I was like, a lot of guys are the same way too. Like you get a group of guys to, together, all they're talking about as women. I was like, regardless of this, that, and the other, Having your your sole focus be the validation of that partnership, I think, is is a miss. So perhaps going back to the beginning of why are we placing so much emphasis on on the worth that is provided by a partnership? Why are we doing that when, you know, yes, of course, love is is life changing. And that person, your person can give you something that no one else can. And it can completely change your life. I still think at the end of the day. There are some things that only you can give yourself, namely what you want in life. You know, you can't borrow someone else's definition of what you want or what you deserve, these things. And again, just in a different way to try to encourage people to find that power in themselves to not borrow the narratives that have been pushed on them by exes or partners or social media, even Mm -hmm. social media saying all men are dishonest. No men are ready to date or all women are crazy or all women are this. Like, I think buying into those only further is what we're talking about here. When we're trying to erode our worth, we have a bad experience and then we assume everyone else is the same Mm -hmm. because we've bought into it. I think it's a, it's a very slippery slope and finding ways to, you know, wipe the slate clean. I talk a lot. I did an episode a while back called is love worth the risk. And I basically said, it's not worth the risk. If each time, each time, because it is a process, each time it doesn't work out for you. If you carry that to the next time and say, this time it happened, therefore next time will be the same, so on and so forth, right? Just defining yourself by your past mm-hmm. ex- experience. I was like, why, why would it be worth it? If you've already defined your next outcome as being the same as your past outcome, Practically, I can't argue with you. It wouldn't be worth it. If we knew it was a 0% chance of, of success, it's like, why, why would you work towards that? I think love is worth, that's very, that sounds like a downer of a statement, but I think logically it's true. I think love is always worth the chance, is worth the risk if we are willing to wipe the slate clean. Finding a way to wipe the slate clean. Finding a way to say, this person hurt me, but not all people are like that. Here's what I deserve. Here's why I deserve it. Again, having that why connection, I think, is really important. So finding a way in our heads to wipe the slate clean of those former experiences, of course, taking the lesson, taking the standards, doing the mindfulness to look back and logically connect the dots with the the statement is you can't connect the dots looking forward, only back. Love isn't worth the chance if you connect it looking forward based on your past experience. But Mm -hmm. if we can look back and wipe the slate clean, carry forward some semblance of a lesson, then, yeah, it's always worth it. But again, that's a very hopeful outlook. But I love it. And <laughs> actually, so, so wipe the slate clean. Actually, this is really freaking powerful because when I read in your book, I was like, oh my God, I've never thought of it as uh, being two separate things. But said, it's not starting from zero. And I think when people are in relationships, mm. one of the fears, going back to where we very first started, right, is the loneliness part of it, is that people may stay in relationships that don't serve them because they don't want to be lonely. You may get into a relationship that doesn't serve you because you don't want to be lonely. Mm. Um, and then when I think about... Um, Partly 
the loneliness that people think of that as, well, I don't want to start from square yeah. one, right? Like I've just been, I've been in this, this relationship for five years. I've dedicated so much time and effort. I don't want to start from zero, but the wipe and the slate clean is actually different things. So if you don't mind explaining that, because it's so powerful. Yeah. I, I think a lot about the, the topic of starting over. Um, that I think the, the quote that always inspired me is you're never starting from zero. You're always starting from experience or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the statement is. And I always used to think about that as kind of like, Oh, that's, that's nice and hopeful self, self help device, uh, advice. But the more I thought about it, the more that I, you know, come back to this idea of finding proof in life of what we're bringing with us, what we're bringing with us and like defining it. So like the, the, kind of the soundbite that I always come back to is like starting over doesn't mean you're getting further away from what you deserve. It means you're getting closer to it logically because you're moving past something that hopefully you've defined as being beneath your standard or making you feel lonely or whatever it may be. Mm. And moving that aside means you're getting closer, not further away, which is total polar opposite of how we usually think. Um, and I think a lot about, you know, how can I prove to myself that, that I'm actually bringing things with me, um, that I'm not starting from scratch. I'm not starting from zero because again, it's, it's easy to buy into that. Yeah. I've put years into this relationship. I've defined myself by this. I've told all my friends about this. All my friends know Mr. And Mrs. or me and like, mm. hor- like the, the, the pressure that comes from that is, is enormous. Um, for me, this sounds very uh, juvenile compared to a deep subject like that, but I've always come back to the idea of like points in life. And I know you're big on ca- confidence and radical confidence is originally I was thinking about confidence. Like where does confidence come from? Confidence isn't something you can think yourself into. It's not something you could just wake up one day and say, I'm confident. Sure, there's something to be said about a mindset, but it comes from experience. Times mm-hmm. where you were awkward, mm-hmm. tripped, failed, embarrassed, rejected, so on and so forth. You moved forward with that and you realize it didn't debilitate you. It didn't matter. People didn't care as much as you thought they would. It makes you stronger. It makes you better, so on and so forth. So for me, I've always bought into the idea of uh, embarrassment points, awkward points, weird points, where every time I do something where I'm like, well, that was awkward. I'm like, point. I give myself a point and then I cash it in for confidence, right? Because confidence comes from embarrassment, right? Very simple way of thinking. But, you know, but then I started thinking about like deeper subjects. I'm like, man, what about the times that I'm disappointed? Ooh, disappointment's another one of those tough subjects, kind of like regret, because it usually comes from something that is done and you can't, you can't change it. I'm disappointed in myself. And I was thinking, man, you know, disappointment's one of those subjects where I actually kind of buy into it because a lot of people don't get disappointed anymore because they've lowered the bar so much or they've disconnected themselves so much from their true pursuit of connection where they don't feel that feeling of disappointment so much because they're just so far removed from it. I was like, so when I feel disappointed as much as, yeah, I'm frustrated with myself for not doing or doing or whatever, or someone else, I'm like, it's good because I still have that connection to some source of truth. I haven't become numb. I I don't have a, it is what it is mentality. I'm still holding on to it. So anyway, so now I have disappointment points. So (laughs) back to the idea of uh, starting over, it's like, that's, I try to prove to myself what I'm bringing with me and using that to say, I'm not getting further away from something. I'm getting closer to something. And that is the, the, the power of starting over. It's the power of temporary people. I think a lot about temporary people. Temporary people are moving you closer to what you deserve because by definition, they were temporary. They serve the purpose, hopefully, that you're able to identify in the somewhat present. I think a lot of times it's, it's mostly looking back, but they, they are, they are proving something to you. Maybe they're offering you proof of a standard or a boundary. You were moving that along with us forward. So embarrassment points, disappointment points, temporary people points. I love it so much. And the idea of really like, assessing your emotions as you're going through them is really, really powerful. Um, and the thing though that I 
try not to trap myself in is just feeling them and then believing that they're true. Now, people may mm. be like arguing right now in the comments, like, well, every feeling is a true feeling. That is correct. But mm. it can come from something that is false. So, for instance, if you say to me, oh, my God, Lisa, I really like your hair. And I'd be like, God damn, did he not like it yesterday? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And it's just that one thing was like, the feeling is that you don't like my hair. Yeah. And it's like, but that actually isn't true based on what you said, right? It's just yeah. the way that I feel. Yeah. So the, the difference between like, are your feelings real or not? is something I really battle with. It's not that yeah. they're not real. Are they valid in the truth of the situation? Actually, that's a better way of mm. saying it. Yes. So in that, in those situations, I'm always the difference between having needs and being needy. Yeah. Like this is one that I'm, I actually battle with a lot because I don't want to feel needy. I don't think anyone hmm. likes the feeling of feeling needy. Right. But I think it's super freaking important that you voice your needs. Of course, always. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about, because you talk about the fact that, you know, if you don't say what yeah. you want, how can you actually expect someone to show up? Yeah. Um, you know, I can't say whether or not someone is too needy or not. I don't know them. I don't know the context of their relationship. From a mindfulness perspective, though, or just thinking about but from yourself, like how do you yeah. process whether am I needy or do I just have needs? Yeah, we we think that speaking to our needs is un unromantic, or that the person that our person should intuitively know exactly what we need. And if I have to speak to it, that means I'm being too needy. And I've just kind of reevaluated and reframed how I think about romance, and that I think speaking to what you need is the most romantic thing ever. And I think that the right person wants to give you that need. And I think your soulmate, your perfect partner, whatever word you want to put on it, they're going to get pretty close because they are that person for you. But no one can fully know what you need and, and how to love you and what you like to hear until, until you state it. But I think in that context, we're very quick to have these conversations of maybe I am too needy because we think that we shouldn't have to voice these things. And I think it's great. I mean, I'm sure from your relationship, you'd agree that it's, and it's great and it's healthy and you should speak to those things because how can you could have an amazing partner who wants to give you everything and love you fully. And they're just, they're, they want to do all these things, but they can't read your mind. They can get 90% of the way there. So I just, I just come back to this idea of we talk ourselves out because we're like, well, that's not romantic. He should know. She should know. And then we start to devolve and have these conversations, which I just think it's unfair to the reality of a relationship. I'm sure, I'm sure you'd agree, but that's how I think about it. A thousand percent. Yeah. And one of the stories that came to mind is me and my husband on our honeymoon. So we go to Rome. We went to Venice and Rome and, um, we're in Rome. We're there for four days. And so the first night I'm like, babe, where do you want to eat? Now at the time, my husband wasn't very experimental with his food. So being a <laughs> white boy from Tacoma, Washington, he was like, he wants chicken nuggets and fries. Oh, man. So we're in Rome and he says he wants to go to the Hard Rock Cafe. Oh, well, bless him. It's his honeymoon too. We'll go to the Hard Rock Cafe. Day two comes. I turn around because I'm, I feel like I'm a good wife. I'm going to take care of his needs. Babe, where do you want to go? Hard Rock Cafe. So we go to the Hard Rock Cafe again. Third night. Babe, where do you want to go? Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> we have one more night left. And the last night I was like, like I just like <laughs> scream almost yeah. in his face, please no more yeah. hard rock cafe. I can't do another. I just want some pasta. Yeah. And he turns to me and he's like, why didn't you just say so? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, he goes, I was like, well, what do you mean? Yeah. And he's like, you just kept asking me what I wanted. And I told you. So it was interesting <laughs> that he had no problem saying yeah. what he needs or wants. Yeah. But yet here I was poor, like just asking him, but not actually addressing what I needed. And so by the mm. final day, it became almost like an explosion for me. Yeah. But he just was so calm and was like, you just didn't say it. And I was like, 
wow. And thankfully it happened at the beginning of our marriage. So I was like, well, that was a very like clear lined lesson to just say what you need and then have the discussion about how you both necessarily get what you want and maybe you compromise or something. But it was just (laughs) so enlightening. That's a great story. I I would be at the Hard Rock Cafe too. I'm I'm a dino (laughs) nugs, mac and cheese, mashed potatoes kind of guy for sure. So I respect that. A creature of habit. I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, we don't like to say women are like this and men are like this, but I do think there's some conditioning there that that speaks to that where men are like, yeah, why? Well, I, because I want that or I need that or I deserve that. That's why I spoke to that. Whereas I think there's pressure on women in general in society not to fall into this trope of like the whiny, needy girlfriend mm-hmm. or wife or whatever mm-hmm. maybe. And while maybe there is room for where that is accurate, I think for the most part, it is it is an illusion brought about by this assumption that speaking to your needs makes you needy, too picky, or whiny. Whereas, you know, to a, a man, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you speak to what you want and you speak to what you deserve. You just, you just do it because the, you can't read, your mind can't, can't be read. So I, I think it is kind of a, you know, a thing to, to sit there and be like, oh, you know, th- this person will telepathically know what I want and eventually we're good to that state. Whereas the right person wants you to speak to those things. And to them, it's like the sexiest thing in the world. You're giving me the blueprint for how to make you feel good and love you, whether that we could even in intimacy and in emotional needs, everything. It's like the right person is going to want to hear those things. And I, the right person isn't going to be like, oh, like, oh, don't do that. So, but unfortunately, I'm sure there are instances where someone did speak to their needs and the person threw them back at them or these mm. things. That's why, again, why we don't, we're not, we don't want to be hurt twice. But I think the, the, the place of truth that I operate from is that speaking to what you want and deserve uh, is is sexy, is is wanted by your partner. And I think, yeah, that was, I'm glad that you said that last thing because it's the, I want to feel needed. Like, yeah. I, it makes me feel good. Oh, there was, even, even better point, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, have you watched the movie Daryl? I think it's called Daryl. It's like uh-huh. really old. So <laughs> the concept is, is that, um, these, these husband and wife and they end up having a, like, they got like a robotic child and it's like a robot. And so the robot can do everything. It doesn't need its mom. And so by the end, the mom's just so mm-hmm. sad. And the robot's like turning to the dad and is like, I don't understand mom. And he's like, because she, you don't need her. And so by the end, this robot kid starts pretending it needs help choosing its clothes. It needs yeah. help choosing the food. And that was what the woman needed. It's, an, it's a great example of humanity is that it feels good to feel needed. Yeah. And so if we, if you're in a healthy relationship, that actually could be a great sign, right? Whereas if you say a need and your partner actually shows up with excitement. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. I mean, yeah, I think... Again, you talk about men and masculinity. Men want to, to feel like mm-hmm. providers and powerful and action oriented. So the right guy is, of course, going to want to give you these things. He wants to feel like, yeah, he's, he's needed in a sense, but also that he can, he can do these things. He can rise above. He, he can, he can do it. Um, you know, I, that reminds me of a topic that I, I just talked about, which I'm very hot on lately is like thinking about this idea of, of being in love or like, what is love? Right. They all, the ultimate subject and, I'm sure there's no wrong answer for it, just as there's no complete right answer. But I think a lot of times we, we confuse, um, love for solely being a feeling in that we're in love. I am in love. It's an ad- adjective. I think it's an adjective, some kind of adjective statement. I'm in love. I am in the feeling, the emotion of love. Whereas, yeah, I think that's true. But what caused that is choices. Like love is choices. Love is the choices that one's makes, one makes. And they're likely choices that are amidst 
discomfort or aversion to doing them. That is the real, uh, you know, barometer for love. It's the, the choices that are being made. So I think a lot of times if you're trying to gauge like the, the health of a relationship or your partner's enthusiasm for a relationship, like you have to look solely at the choices that are being made, not just mm. the feelings, because I'm sure there are instances in a very healthy relationship where on a Tuesday, you're just not, you're not feeling completely in love. It's just one of those days you got a lot on your mind. But if we're always looking at, am I in love? Do I feel in love as the barometer? I think we can start really rattling our cage with, well, maybe this relationship isn't right. Maybe I'm not in love. But if we're looking at the choices, you make the tough choices for them. They make the tough choices for you. They mm-hmm. do the things because they know you want them, even if they don't want to do them. That I think is a great lens to look through. Um, and I think it's, it's a powerful way to, to look at at love because it's all it's all behavior of course and the feeling is is the by byproduct the symptom of that uh, so i come back to that as like looking at the choices that you're making for your partner i think a lot a lot of a lot of men you know are quick to talk themselves out of a relationship it's very easy to to be like oh well you know this threatens my independence or you know uh whatever maybe i think in my 20s that was a big reason that i would like talk myself out of commitment i'd be like oh I've, you know I've, I've got a million things i want to do i can't be in a relationship and be independent at the same time and those mm-hmm. were very at odds with me so i think coming back to like what are the what are the choices that you make even if they're hard i think that's a great way to to gauge your like real truthful inclination towards a relationship um even if they're the tough ones to make Mm -hmm. choices not just feelings choices not just emotions i think is a really healthy way to look how did you make that choice then in your 20s Uh, well, I, again, about the reframing, I kind of redefined what I think the purpose of a relationship is. Uh, talking about words and phrases, I don't like the phrase settle down. And I used to think about that phrase. Everyone used to say, yeah, I'm ready to settle down. I had my fun. I'm ready to settle down. You know, I'm, I, 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 I'm successful enough. I'm ready to settle down. And I think that that gave me and gives us such a like a backwards understanding of what the right relationship gives us. I think the right relationship gives us the opposite of settling down with that person. It gives you more life. Mm-hmm. It gives you more of everything because now you have this person together, which you can go out and you have this incredible safety net and you can go out and do more and see more and, you know, just challenge yourself more. So I think for that one, that was a, a reshift. And then two, specifically independence, I think the the right partner makes you more independent. And I always used to wrestle with that because I always used to think, well, partnership means you lose your independence. It's just inevitable. And maybe that's just, that's the trope that we see in, in movies and whatnot. Or mm-hmm. maybe there's bad examples that, that we look to. But there's even something called the dependency paradox, which is a, uh, I don't know, psychological observation in child rearing and adolescence where the more dependency you have between a child and a caretaker, dependency being, uh, good dependency, like loyalty, honesty, openness, like the whole thing, the tighter that bond is, the more independent the child is because they know that they have a parent who, if they trip and fall, they'll pick them up. Mm. If they're willing to take a step out on their own and try and fail and be rejected and so on and so forth, because they know they have that, that safety net. And I don't know when I read about that. And obviously there's degrees to which that's healthy or not healthy, but I always thought about that within the context of relationship. The the closer you are with a partner means you're encouraged to be more independent. And again, thinking about like, we used to think that speaking your needs is unromantic. I used to think that if I looked at a relationship and one person was independent in the relationship, I was like, that's not a healthy relationship. Like something's wrong there. And I just totally reframed. I was like, no, that outside looking in, that's good. That means they have that compassionate dependency, not codependency, but like 
emotional, uh, you know, bonding there that they're willing to encourage each other to be independent. Um, and that really just kind of helped me rethink the purpose of a relationship, not to settle down, not to rob you of your independence. It's, it's literally the opposite. Again, talking about opposites mm. and spectrum, um, that was really freeing for me. Oh my God. I love this so much. <laughs> As you were talking, I was thinking about the word independent. I was like, wow, how have we got ourselves so trapped in this word independent that if you're with someone, it means you can't be. And so the word independent, almost now means like walls, barriers, blockages. Um, And there's a quote, God, I wish I could remember who said it, but it's something like the most successful people are the people with the most stable home life. Yeah. And when I think about that, that is Mm. so true. It's a person that you you don't feel like you're on rocky ground at home. So Mm. you can go out, you can be, you can be uh, independent and try new things and try things in business or try things that, you know, at work. But know that no matter what happens, you've got that stable life at home where your partner's going to be there yeah, for you. Yeah. And the independence thing is, I think, the fear of I can't do what I used to. So my husband, I know who I married. He was ambitious. He is ambitious. So to me, getting married was more just me than helping him on his ambition. Mm. Not now saying, well, you were ambitious when you were by yourself, but now that we're in a relationship, this thing that makes you who you are, I now don't want that. Mm. And I think a lot of people fear that the thing that makes them them, when they get into a relationship, someone's going to try and rob them of it. Yeah. 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 And I, I think it's a normal fear, but I think it's a very misplaced fear. Uh, I th- I think a lot about, again, the, the purpose of a relationship. It's not to settle down. It's not to rob you of your independence. I think about it when, when in the sense, the cliche of, you know, you should try to find someone who is whole, who is, you know, your two holes coming together. Not two perfect people, but just two holes in the, in the sense of that. And the idea is your partner is there to amplify what you've already created or amplify the path that you're on in, in a realistic sense, right? Of course, in a respectful, reciprocity, reciprocity driven way. But it's like their role and your role is to amplify the, the happiness, the drive, the fulfillment, mm. the curiosity that is true to you. And like, I like that word amplify. They're not there to complete you. They're not there to offer you new complete purpose and here's your life now they're there to amplify and that's why i'm big again i encourage people as as best they can to be patient and to focus on themselves and build something that only they can give to themselves in the pursuit of being whole and then have that person come along and amplify it and you amplify that like to me that's a beautiful way to think about a relationship Maybe a bit idealistic, but I think the idea of amplifying, not robbing, certainly not putting, not, not detracting, absolutely. But I, I think yeah, independence is like the most practical way to, mm. to bring it to life. And, and then in my current relationship with my girlfriend, we're, it's the, the perfect representation of that. Like we, you know, I, I am very driven. I do a lot of, you know, creative things where I'm always just chasing little things and it's great and it's fine. And she does her own thing as well. And it's, there is never a moment of like, Ooh, I wonder if that's a bad thing that, you know, she doesn't want to do this with me or I'm here right now and she didn't come with me to this. It's like, no, it's like we have each other's back so firmly that we're empowered to do it. Mm. Is there a fine line between about being these two independent people that have these drives that have have these goals and desires and dreams um, and then coming together if they don't align. 
Absolutely, I'm sure. I mean, I, like, I think probably come back to the idea of like love languages and like, what do you need? Like, what makes you feel loved? Like, I think if, if you're too independent, we lose sight of, you know, the needs within the relationship, if it's quality time or physical or whatever the, the, the stereotypical mm-hmm. things are. Um, I think that becomes a problem. Um, or again, if, if you go to a deeper level and you're, you're trying to prove something through your independence outside of the relationship or like that you're worthy of, of being loved or things like that, again, the, the full cycle there, I think that's probably where we get in trouble. Um, but I think as with everything, the answer is balance. I think at a, at a certain point in a relationship, even if you are hyper independent and you're always go, 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 and you want to do things, at a certain point, you need to come back to the relationship and make the maybe the tough choice for the night to close the laptop and just be together. Mm-hmm. I think, again, tough, tough I mean, not even tough, but just compassionate choices. Um, but I'm sure it's a slippery slope, I'm sure, of, of, you know, people who are too defined by their work or their curiosity, where we need to come back and practice patience and some stillness. That's big for me. I think in relationships or outside of relationships, just, just rushing, 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 always trying to do these things where we look back and we realize we had all these amazing moments together and we didn't appreciate them while we had them. Mm. My girlfriend and I are really big right now on, being in a moment and saying, this is a core memory. You think about the core memory phase, um, maybe as a TikTok thing or just in general, but it's like, we, the only way we define core memories is looking back. You're like, man, that was a core memory. Oh, take me back. You know, take me back to our honeymoon. Like, oh, beautiful. That was so great. It's like, that's great. It's great to reminisce. It's great to be nostalgic. But I want to say in the moment that this is a core memory or this is a core memory together. Mm. And we're going to appreciate it as such in the moment. So like that's big for me. And that's just presence and that's just gratitude. But I think that's very, very important. And maybe that's the like, um, you know, kind of the pause moment uh, between two hyper independent people that, you know, can help bring you together and actually be present. Because isn't that the point of a relationship to be present <laughs> together? In those moments, like the core memories can be beautiful, but also they can be really uh, detrimental, right? Like you have this beautiful relationship and then you have this one moment that can actually crack your relationship forever. Mm. That then becomes a core memory that you wish you didn't have. Yeah. Yep. Balance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the, 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 the toughest part. It's like, what do, what do we do with that memory? I mean, I think the cliche mm. is like, do we use it to empower ourselves or do we use it to hold ourselves back? I mean, I, I think that's that's the magic of life. If you can figure that out where you have bad, frustrating memories and you can take what you need from it, name, namely a learning, some kind of patience with yourself. If you can do that, I think you've you've got 99 percent of life figured out. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the toughest thing in the world is like, what do you do with that memory? What is that? What is that proof of? Again, it's like in the court of law. Are you the prosecutor? Or are you the defendant? Like what what is what is our ethos on life? Or like, are, <laughs> I'd say, like, are we glass half full or half empty? Mm-hmm. And life isn't that simple. But like, what is what are the facts that we've established for ourselves that we're looking to support? Not delusionally, because sometimes, yeah, <laughs> sometimes you deserve to be embarrassed or rejected or like life is life. But like, what can we do with that so we don't devolve and go to this headspace of determining future worth based on past experience. I, that, I mean, mm-hmm. that is that is the key to life. Um, and if we had a blueprint for that, everyone would follow it. But I think it's unique to each and every person. I love that. You just mentioned patience, though. But in your book, mm. you talk about one of the big things that people say, um, like one of the bad dating advice or relationship advices is, you know, like, oh, no, like, have hope that they're going to change. And like, you're just like, mm. um, sometimes, you know, like hope can actually just lead you astray and you end up staying in a relationship because you have the hope. Mm. So where do you where's the, the gap or the line between patience and hope? I think it's a fine one. Uh, I think it's, it's a fine line. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, the, the question, like, 
I think there's a big temptation, um, and like, it's, it's weird. We're very hypocritical. It's like, we're always rushing. Of course, I got, I'm getting older. I got to get in a relationship. I got to be SVP of this guy. I got to do these things. But then when we find ourselves in situations that aren't, you know, reciprocated or not a healthy relationship, all of a sudden we become very patient. Oh, things will change. Or, you know, I've got that vision for the white picket fence. Like one day things will be good. So like, we're very, we're very hit or miss with our emotions. It is kind of funny that we do that. Um, so I think a big problem, of course, is we date in potential and we don't date in reality. Um, we're very quick to give people credit for the things that we see a glimmer of hope for, and then we ignore the things that are like glaring red flags. Um, and again, I think that's a personal balance. We need to figure out what it is that we want and deserve and hold ourselves to it. That's a personal journey. I think for me, the question I always come back to in those contexts is in this moment with the way the relationship currently is not date one, day two, but like we're in the relationship. If nothing were to change, from here, is this good enough for me? Uh, I don't really like the, the phrase good enough, but just practically, is, is this uh, fulfilling enough? Is this compassion enough? Is this whatever enough, the, this thing that we're mm-hmm. after? That's the the most you know revealing question. And certainly every relationship and every person is evolving and, and needing work. And we're all finding ways to love ourselves more and love other people and work through through insecurities. But looking at like the, the measure of reciprocity in the relationship, what is given and what is received, what is the enthusiasm either way, if nothing about that were to change, is that good enough for you in the moment? I think a lot of times we don't answer that question mm-hmm. or we're afraid to ask it because sometimes the answer is no. And then we're back to the conversation about starting over and that's tough. But I think finding a way, again, mindfulness, finding a way to zoom back in on the, on the present and instead of placing all of our hopes in, in potential and what could be, Thinking about change, I mean, the, the cliche is true that, you know, people have to want to change. You can't force someone to change. Um, I certainly think you can be a catalyst for someone to change. You can be the reason that they change um, in the sense that you have provided them proof of why they should change and they want to change. Not to appease you, not to get you off their back, not so you stop whining about it or whatever things they might say. But like from a, a place of, of truth and power from they want to change because your example in their life has has shown them why it's why it's real, why they should, why they've been remiss this whole time. In that instance, I think change is possible and I think you can play a role, but I'd say 90% of the time, the whole trope of like, he will change for me or mm. she will change or whatever, whatever variation, I think it's misplaced. You, you can't, you can't force someone to change. Um, and I think unfortunately we realize that sometimes late in that process where we're doing this negotiation with each other. Um, you know, the, the only, you know, proof is changed behavior, but it has to come from a place of genuine, uh, in, intention and, and why they have to know why they're doing these things so that it's long, long standing change. Otherwise it'll just collapse on itself. Mm. So you can't change someone, but let's say you're in this relationship and you've done all the work. You've tried, really tried to choose the right person. You show up confident. You stand your ground. You have these boundaries. You set yourself up for success. You communicate with your partner. And over time, you start to change, but they don't. So now in this situation, I want to really tie everything that we've just spoken yeah. about together. So now in this situation, you can't change them. You've done the own, your own self-work. You've really dug deep into finding your self-worth, but they don't change. In those moments, at what point do you walk away? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that uh, that's tough. I mean, I, sur- I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. I think the the answer that I would come back to would be, you know, have you had the conversation about their change? Maybe, you know, for them, they have put, you know, a ceiling on their growth and they're just, they haven't had the curiosity driving them or for some, something's holding them back that isn't a reflection of 
their you know health of their their appetite for you their enthusiasm for you i think i think that could always be true i always try to approach things from a from a place of of empathy like you know um you talk to a lot of women they're like uh you know the guy he you know he didn't didn't try to kiss me after a date or something like that or he didn't text me and then you dive into it and well a couple relationships ago he did and was horribly rejected and made fun of or you know he did text and she was like ew get away from me i never want to date you and he internalized that right in the same way that women internalize things so we're carrying with us these things that have dictated limits uh, to our enthusiasm, to our action, maybe to our growth, things like that. So, uh, you know, I'm not encouraging people to be overly patient and put up with things that are clearly beneath their their standard for growth and evolution. But I think, you know, the only way to truly know is to have these conversations to see what is their awareness of yours mm. versus theirs. Maybe this is not even uh, on the plate. Um but from there, I mean, I think it's up, it's up to you. Again, I'm deciding if nothing were to change at this point, is that good enough? Because we're, we're always evolving, um, you know, and I would challenge people to not always be chasing better and more. Um, I think, you know, I always come back to the idea of we are always, in a sense, chasing better and more in life. Um, and I think that's great. I think we're all capable of better and more in a sense. But I have found in my life that some of my most fulfilling moments and evolutions have come from different and simpler not necessarily 10x or bigger or better, but different or simpler mm. so varieties. So chasing simpler or different versus chasing something better. Correct. Or considering something different or simpler. Mm. Maybe, you know, maybe the key to, you know, a, a professional change or a relationship change lies in simpler. Maybe let's take some of the things out that are detracting rather instead of trying to just build, 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 build. Mm. Maybe that's a thought. Mm. So I think just like opening your your heart and your mind to like what uh, growth looks like, as opposed to always assuming it's just uh, this like lateral kind of on a on a on a straight line thing could be mm. could be a thought. But then mm. at the end of the day, of course, I think it comes down to that question: if nothing were to change, is this good enough? Is this growth oriented? Is it enough? And so on and so forth. Oh, that's really strong because again, I think through the idea that I think everyone wants a long lasting happy relationship, right? The happy is very important. And so every time I think through this, I mean, I, you know, I've told you that I've been married for 20, uh, 20 years. We both evolve and we both change. So even if you do the work, right? Like if you're single and you've done the work of making sure that, you know, you know who you are, you've done the, like everything that we've yeah. just spoken about. Now I just think about you've done all that. You have this beautiful relationship, but 10, 15, 20 years down the line, you hope to be different people. And so if one of you has either grown and the other one hasn't, or if you've grown in opposite directions, what's that thing? I'm always looking, right? What's yeah. that thing that allows people to reconnect? And I've thought through this <laughs> a thousand different ways. I don't know where I would be if my husband didn't also have a growth mindset yeah. because I've got such a growth mindset that the advice I always give, and in fact, I get a lot of pushback on this, help me actually, Case, I get a lot of pushback <laughs> because I'm like, well, do this, say this, do this. And they're like, yeah, but it's worked for you because yeah. you have a partner who has a growth mindset who can receive that type of conversation. Yeah. I think for me, being younger, 34 in a two-year relationship, I think for me, like once you're in a relationship, we can't change the past, of course. But I do. I think it's so important to define what a healthy relationship looks like. To what is the point of a relationship? Again, mm. finding someone with a growth mindset. I think you're going to find that person if you've aligned from the beginning that a relationship is not about settling down, right? So again, going back Ooh. to what we we're talking about there. So maybe that's your 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 pre-flight checklist before you get in a relationship. <laughs> so well, once you're oh, in the yeah. relationship, I, I I'm not so sure, but I, I do think a lot of a lot of communication is going to be healthy. Um, but I but also again, it's like I I I genuinely challenge myself because I definitely have a growth mindset, 
And I, I think sometimes it's, I think growth mindset's essential. I think it's, it's imperative, but I think sometimes it can get the better of you. It's like, you're always chasing something could be bigger, better, but why? Like, why do you want that thing that you're trying to evolve to? And we're not necessarily talking about emotional intelligence growth and, you know, things like that, like the internal stuff, but like accolades and exposure mm. and things like that. Like, why are, why are we trying to evolve to that? Uh, so I, I really do try to challenge myself in this, those instances. Why? Why? Why am I going after these things? Why do I? Why mm-hmm. do, bigger questions like why do I even want the things that I want? Maybe these aren't true to me, and I have tricked myself into thinking this is a growth mindset where it's really not. I'm just copying and pasting, and now that's a different conversation, <laughs> and that's coming back to me. So that's how I would approach it, knowing I don't really have the breadth of a you know longer relationship to have a great answer to that. But like challenging yourself on. Why do you want these things? Is it, is it, are you trying to prove something? Talk a lot in the book about mimetic desire, about why you want the things you want. Maybe they aren't true to you. Maybe you've, you've spent a lifetime chasing something only to realize it never really meant anything to you. You just did it because you've been conditioned in a sense to want it. So, so society has taught you that this is what you want. And maybe you've duped yourself into thinking it's a growth mindset. So a bit of a challenge to myself or anyone in that, in that instance to maybe take a step back and really get to the why of it before saying, you know, this, this is the thing. If it's not being mirrored in a partner, it's, it's a negative. Well, maybe we both have some work to do mm. to decide how are we defining these things in the first place? Mm, I love that. I'm glad that you brought up mimetic desire, by the way. And it, um, you describe it in the book, it's like if you break up your, with your boyfriend and then you get with someone else, the guy, your ex-boyfriend now wants you because they see you with someone else. Right. So explain that, explain what's going on. And then this is a very common thing. And I'm, again, just going to put myself um, in the, as the example. I used to think, oh, well, he see, I knew he loved me, but actually I was blinding myself to the fact that it was just mimetic desire yeah, yeah, and not yeah. actually that he wanted me. Yeah, we, we find the wrong proof point there. Uh, well, I mean, mimetic, mimetic desire, mimetic theory is really interesting. Obviously not my own. Rene Girard is like the grandfather of it. There's a great book called Wanting by Luke Burgess, which like really dives into the whole thing. But the the genesis of it was with this uh, Professor Girard, who is this you know great academic in the... 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, somewhere in there. Um, basically talking about he was in a relationship with this woman and then he was young and kind of a, an, an F boy, uh, for, for all measures and decided he wanted to play the field a bit more and he broke up with her and then he saw her out and about with another boyfriend and she looked so happy and they were great together. And then all of a sudden he found himself wanting to get back together with her. And his theory from that was the reason that he wanted to get back was he had seen a model of what he should want. That is a happy, a happy, healthy relationship. And it was a model to him uh, about why he should want that. And he broke it all down in different ways. And he's basically spent the, the rest of his, uh, his days as an academic looking at this idea of uh, basically social copycat in every industry from the things that we buy to the way that we view life to the relationships to consumerism to advertising and that there's very little in life that uh, we have decided we want that hasn't been conditioned in a sense mm-hmm. in, a, in a you know kind of keeping up with the joneses uh, kind of way um, and that everything has been modeled to us in a sense you know buy this look this way get this feeling this is the relationship you should want so on and so forth and um I think it's a really interesting point, of course, because nothing in life is devoid of inspiration in some in some sense. And I think balance is good. I think it's great to be inspired by other people. Of course, you have to you know be inspired in some sense. It's very few people create from absolute zero. We're all mm. inspired in different ways. But I like it as a proof point that anytime I feel compelled to do something that I don't really know why I'm doing it, I come back to this point of pause and say, well, perhaps this is something that I have, has been modeled to me. 
by a parent, by uh, an ex, by a friend, by the media, by social media, whatever it is, maybe I can take pause and push back on this thing instead of just buying in blindly into a timeline, a belief, a standard, a boundary. Talk about picky when we first opened. Mm-hmm. A lot of those picky things were maybe, you know, didn't mean much to us, but we were borrowing it. The silliest example I always give is that there are some women, uh, genu- you know, genuinely, and I have respect for them, who want their boyfriend to post them as their woman crush Wednesday on social media. And if the guy doesn't, they're genuinely upset because they see that as proof that their relationship is healthy. And then there are other women who think it's the most absurd thing in the world. So just the point of like two different things. And I think about, you know, we all ha- we all could have a, a broad spectrum of, of wants and needs. And I like that as an example of some people buy into it, some people don't. And I think that's how we should approach really every desire in life. Not to be that annoying, cynical person who's like, why? Or like whatever, but just like the challenge of things that we feel compelled to do in order to deliver a certain outcome I think is so, so powerful because I think we'd be remiss to, to, to think that we've decided what we want completely in life. Mm. I think as we get older, certainly um, we've let go of a lot of the things that uh, we've been carrying with us. Like, I can't believe I wanted that for so long or I can't believe I was validated by this, that and the other. But I think 20s, 30s, I think we're, we're uh, very quick to, to be borrowing these things. Mm. And that's the essence of life. You, you borrow, you try it and you let go. But some, some things we're holding on to. Um, I think the big things, of course, would be money as validation, partnership status as validation, um, and, you know, you know, certain accolades and you know, superficial things like that. But uh, I really am drawn to that idea of why do we want what we want? Have we sat down and decided why we want it? Mm. That's, that's my favorite word in the world is why. If you could truly ask yourself why at multiple levels and get to the the bottom of something. I think you have a lot of, you know, very cathartic conversations with yourself where you actually do change. Um, But I think coming back to the idea of, you know, just recognizing that maybe there's some things in your life that you've been blindly chasing that aren't true to you. That could be the the thing you need to change. I love that. And writing down like your whys of why you value things is actually really beautiful. Great way of people like really assessing because I think, it, um, our natural instinct is to beat ourselves up, right? Like, oh, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe I fell for that. Or yeah. it's like, well, instead of beating yourself up, just say, oh, these are what I think I value. And now let me question them and see if they actually align with my true essence. I don't know. So let's really use that word much, yeah. but, um, and as you were talking as well, I do think to your point that we look at other people and we go, oh, that must be valuable. And I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to be transparent, right? I have done this as when I was in my teenage years. I let, I dump, dumped, <laughs> I, I dumped a boy. I was like 16. No, no, so I dumped a boy. And 16, it was the language yeah. we used. And then he went out with one of the popular girls in school. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Because she was popular. I mean, yeah. She goes out with him. And so now I started like, what did I miss? Yeah. Because I thought that the popular girl had better, um, like a better value yeah. system yeah. than I did. So I yeah. must now like, oh shit. And then I started regretting it. And like, I yeah. shouldn't have dumped him yeah. and all of this like story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think building on the idea of, of mimetic theory and, and, and desire, there's a lot to be said about then the role that like conformity and pressure plays mm. on that. I had another chapter in there about this guy named Solomon Ash. He was like the uh, founding father of conformity study, a very, very niche uh, academic field, but really interesting stuff in like the 50s to to prove 
the the influence that uh, social pressure has on people. And he did this really simple experiment. I'll probably butcher it, but basically he put a bunch of people in a room um, where uh, everyone was in on it except for one person. And they were trying to gauge this one person to see how they reacted to other people's answers. And basically what they did, they had a room with call it 10 people, nine of which were these Confederates and one was the true study. And he basically showed them three lines, just like little straight lines of different length. And then drew a third one. And he was like, which line is that similar to most similar to of the other ones? And it was just, it was a blatantly obvious answer, right? They were all certain length and he's which one is it most similar to and he had the the one person answer last so that person had to see every single answer that all the confederates answered and he had the confederates give wrong answers until it finally got to that last person and then like 75 percent of the case that person just followed suit even though it was obviously wrong they were like yeah that book's green Yep, the screen. And he did this just to prove the power of, of social conformity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting stuff because, you know, for one, that's, that's the, the, the power of, of numbers, right? You got enough people in a room saying one thing, you're going to follow suit because you don't want to be wrong. And afterwards he would, he would, uh, serve them. Like, why would you say that? And they would either say they didn't want to be wrong. They didn't want to be embarrassed or, to your point, they assumed that that the other people knew something they didn't know. Like, well, he's like, and maybe it was green. Maybe, maybe I'm colorblind all of a sudden in this instance. <laughs> like, and they like, they convinced themselves of that. So like really interesting ways that we can question our decisions based on larger group think, mm-hmm. um, or just, you know, assuming that because someone else, for instance, someone else looks happy. That person looks happy on Instagram. So therefore they have something that I need. I need to mimic their life. Mm. Um, or a lot of people own a certain shoe well that shoe must offer them something that i need they must be aware of something or investment strategy or whatever is hot topic of the day i think you combine mimetic theory and conformity plus our own robot mode uh it's a it's kind of a a a melting pot of 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 challenges uh but really the only way to challenge a challenge is to be aware of it, I suppose. So that's why I mm-hmm. included a chapter in there. And I, for me, it's like, I'm always just trying to like, why do I want this thing? Why am I doing this thing? Am I doing it for them? Where did this come from? And then I hit why and you know, it's helpful. It really hit me. And I love that part of the book because being Greek Orthodox, I think when it comes to expectations with religion or with family, um, it really does align with everything you just said, right? The conformity, mm. the like oh, everyone yeah. pointing at the short line when you're like, I think it's the long one. Yeah. You know, the 70%, like when you're in a very religious family and everyone around you is going to church and they're praying and everything. And then you're the one that's sitting there yeah. maybe saying like, I don't know if I believe in God, right? Like, obviously, that's the religious side of it. But even let's go back to relationships. If you're in, you know, a a family that, in fact, my own, everyone marries Greek Orthodox. It's like, Mm. that was just the thing. And I brought Tom into the family who's, you know, hadn't been christened. And so everybody was like, he's not your type. And what is, he's not, you you guys aren't going to last. And every time I would ask someone in my family, why it's like, because you guys can't relate to each other. So it was everyone else's expectations of what they thought, um, the value system is in a relationship. And the fact that if you come from different places, then surely you can't value each other. And so that became their value system. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd be remiss to also not place a lot of emphasis on the role of family, mm-hmm. uh, close family, distant family pe- plays in, in everything we're talking about here. And it's easy to be like, oh, social media and, and, you know, people from college or whatever, but like family plays a huge role in establishing those things from, from early on. I mean, it's a reason why 
you know, therapists, basically their sole job is to break down conditioning mm. and conditioning comes early on in childhood and adolescence and how you're baked in to respond to the world. Like where does, like, where does your natural appetite uh, come from? Like how do you respond to drama? All these different things comes from that. And if you have, you know, parents for generations that have, you know, bought into certain things in, in a healthy way, perhaps. Or not, it's, it's very difficult to break free from that, much less than break free from the, the, the conformity that comes from just the greater society. So there's a lot of unlearning to, to be had. And I think perhaps that's the, the real value of journaling and, and therapy. It's, it's not, again, I'm really passionate about this topic. It's not always about more and better. It's about unlearning. It's about unburdening. It's about simpler. It could be about completely different. Um, and I, but I, I think sometimes we're, we're very bullheaded and we double down on these things, whereas maybe we don't need to. And I think that could be really liberating. I love the unlearning part. I wish I had the quote at hand. Um, but in your book, you say something like, don't let ex-boyfriends like, um, dictate your worth. Don't let family dictate your worth. Don't let co- yes. Uh, yes. business colleagues, like bosses dictate your worth. Yeah. And so like the unwinding or the unlearning where we get into a relationship, whether it's partner, business, family, and then we have an idea, we work hard at it. But over time, other people start to erode that, that feeling or that credibility that we've tried to build within ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're very quick to kind of uh, outsource our, I say outsource our needs, outsource our feelings to, to other people. I think the quote that I have, one of, one of the quotes I wrote that was really popular was life changes for the better when we prioritize how our life feels to us instead of how it looks to other people. And I think if we were to get real honest with ourselves, we do a lot of things like literal actions in order to look good to other people, mm-hmm. to look good on paper, whether or not people are even looking at us. Like we've developed this whole ethos where everyone's looking at us and cares about us. And, uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, we do these things out of that. And I think true, a true compassionate, free, most importantly, free life is one where mm-hmm. we're doing things, um, because it feels rewarding to us and not, in, not in like a hedonistic, you know, going all in way, but like reprioritizing why are we doing the things we're doing? Are we doing them to look good on paper to other people and then hope that a personal feeling of fulfillment comes from that or are we doing things because it feels good to us and honors our truth that's Mm -hmm. always a word that i've struggled with what does our truth mean i mean that's just literal radical honesty that's backed by why are our actions following that or are they following some larger you know system of attention or influence or impressing other people i think that's the question we have to answer and could take a long time uh, i suppose to to come up with a, a system that helps you break free but um, I think at least recognizing that, that there's a difference between actions that look good to other people and that feel good to you. Uh, it's great to find the sweet spot where it's one and the same, mm-hmm. but um, that could take a while. Yeah, <laughs> to, just know which one your North Star is though, yeah, right? At least have taken time to determine that you have a North Star. Because mm-hmm. the, the whole book and like everything that I do is just about this idea of being in the gray of life. The whole, like I started the podcast uh, in 2018, like five years ago. And it was just because I felt like I was living in the gray, dating people just to date, working this job just to you know, have a job, but also to f- define myself by being a good salesperson, all these things. And I was like, man, it, it would be really frustrating to look back and regret these paths that I kept going down for so long, mm-hmm. kind of adrift and just hoping that one day someone or something or some accolade will come along and say, Hey, you've, you've been doing the right thing. Congrats. Uh, so I just really wanted to challenge myself to get out of the gray, to get out of ambiguity, to not have a, I call it a defeatist mentality. Uh, it is what it is kind of, kind of vibe. Um, and just be more active and, and less passive in my life. And I think, how can I act? How can I speak more in alignment with these things as opposed to just thinking them that I think is always going to deliver the outcome that that grows you or that introduces you to bigger, to better, 
or different or simpler. (laughs) Well, you've given us so many things to act on now and your book, That's Bold of You, has so many things that we can, that we really can use to act. So where can people find you? Where can people find your new Uh, book and everything you're doing? Thank you so much. Uh, Yeah, the book's That's Bold of You. Obviously, it's nice and yellow and and pink. Nice and bold. Can't miss it. Uh, (laughs) That's the idea on the bookshelf. Uh, Case.Kenny on Instagram and then the podcast is New Mindset Who Dis if you want to hear me uh, talk more about these things.